Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. I am so excited to share today's episode with all of you. Usually we present a story of psychiatric healing, but today's episode is that and much, much more. My guest today is my dear friend and trauma therapist, Saj Razvi, who weaves together his three fascinating perspectives. That of a nationally recognized trauma expert, his own personal story of early childhood neglect and how this shaped everything else to come. And finally, his long journey of healing the deepest wound a person can have, eventually coming to MDMA and then psilocybin at the latter part of his therapy journey. Part one today ends with Saj's profound and life-changing MDMA treatment. Then in part two, Saj shares some surprising and hard-won lessons about using psilocybin for psychological healing. A note to listeners, MDMA and psilocybin are both Schedule I illegal substances. Saj's MDMA therapy session took place in the context of his training to be a therapist in the MAPS MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD study, and his psilocybin session occurred in the Netherlands. Saj, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so excited to have you here today because, um, well, one, you have an amazing story, your own story of healing, and two, you're my go-to trauma expert. When I think of trauma questions and trauma musings, you're my man to talk to. And three, I think you, more than almost anyone I know, have some of the most interesting and potentially useful ideas and guidance and wisdom on the use of psychedelics and healing. Thank you, Greg. Happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just as an introduction, Saj, you are the director of Innate Path in Denver. Yeah, I'm the director of education at Innate Path. Yeah. Tell us more about Innate Path. Sure. Uh, well, we are a, we do three things. We provide psychedelic psychotherapy, clinical services. Uh, we run trainings for clinicians around the country. And then finally, we are, we are a research organization where, because we're uh, trying to validate these medicines, particularly cannabis and ketamine for use in mental health around the country. Mm-hmm. Is innate path specifically focused on trauma? You know, we're not specifically focused on trauma. That is our background. And I think if you asked anybody there, we would say that, you know, most of the people that we treat have had either highly stressful or overwhelming experiences at some point in their life, particularly in childhood. That's most of who we end up seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, even without specifically being a, a trauma-focused center, that's that's who walks in the door. Yeah. You know, that's... Uh, that's the person that has treatment resistance. And um, right now we're seeing people that have gone through, you know, years of psychotherapy. And uh, a lot of times they've gone through the psychiatric paths too. And um, so they're using psychedelic work as a last line mm-hmm. response. Um, but we're st- start, as the, as the uh, culture shifts around this, we're starting to see people engaging with psychedelic work as a first line response. Mm-hmm. Before, we get, yeah. before we get more into... Uh, some of the specifics of psychedelics and of your personal story, maybe we could bring everyone up to speed on trauma, because I think some of the people listening to this are experienced trauma therapists, and some people know very little about trauma. And I wonder if we might start with just talking a little bit about what trauma does to the body and mind. You know, one of the most famous books in trauma is The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah. It holds the score. <laughs> Keeps the score. <laughs> Whoops. Um, and I wonder if you, we might just start you talking a little bit about how the body holds trauma and how that manifests over time. Yeah. Okay. So I would say, you know, a, a, maybe a big definition, big level definition of trauma is that it, it's a series of responses that we enter into when under conditions of threat. And uh, that could be threat that happens in the present moment, or it could have been threat that happens, you know, decades ago. Um, and it affects all of us, right? It affects our, our biology, it affects our emotional state, it affects our thinking and the, the types of thoughts that we have. And I think most, the, the, the standard way that trauma is approached in mental health really is as, you know, uh, working with it in terms of belief systems and um, distorted thinking that can come with it. And we find that I, th- I think there's a, a movement in, in mental health to say, no, we have to go deeper when it comes to trauma, because we can see the same reactions, uh, symptoms, responses in other mammals that we see in us. Right. Uh, you know, we see. Um, so let me, let me just back up a little bit. So 
we know that the the mammalian nervous system goes through a series of uh, responses when it comes to threat. So initially, you know, we'll have what we call mild stress responses. Um, so anxiety, uh, hyper uh, hypervigilance, insomnia, things like that, where there's some level of threat, but nothing imminent is happening. And so we just have to be on edge and paying attention to, to the situation. You know, think about walking down a dark alleyway in a city at night. You know, you're just going to be on edge to do that. And that's an appropriate response. Uh, the next level of threat is when, you know, there's an active uh, life-threatening thing happening to us. And so we go into a very high stress or uh, like a, a panic level response. And if you think about, you know, being assaulted or raped or being in a, a battlefield situation and you're being shot at, you are having a, a ton of adrenaline released into your system, um, a major fight or flight response. And this is, you know, that kind of uh, situation is where we find pan panic attacks come from. And then we find that once the threat has gone, gotten to a certain point of overwhelm where our capacity to deal with the, uh, the threat is exceeded by the, the intensity of the threat, we move into uh, passive solutions. So basically there's a what we call a parasympathetic response that, that emerges, which is a, a numbing or a shutting down. Um, what, what we know happens physiologically in the body is that, you know, we have these naturally occurring opioids, endogenous opioids that get released at that point. And so, you know, we move from panic states to a very depressed, collapsed, hopeless, um, you know, fallen apart kind of kind of condition. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder, yeah. my sense is that a lot of people, myself included, until I did your training, uh, a lot of people imagine trauma as yeah, activating the nervous system, making people mm -hmm. um, hyper aroused or anxious or unable to sleep or edgy or explosive, almost imagine like a, a beaten dog that you would adopt from rescue. And one of the interesting, one of the most helpful takeaways I took from your training years ago was how powerful this final stage is, the, the parasympathetic shutdown, dissociative opioid dump, if you will, that sends people into the numb dissociative freeze and how that actually is the end result of a lot of people's trauma and why they can't get better. Yeah, I think the, um, uh, the ball game is all in the, uh, the dissociated realms. Um, if you were lucky to come out of a difficult childhood or an experience and you only had uh, anxiety or panic symptoms, you're doing pretty well. Um, those are the people that we see. Uh, the prognosis is very good with those people, um, you know, because there's no splitting of the psyche. There's no uh, uh, there's no dissociation turning on with, with that kind of response, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so I think the, the true art and science of working with trauma resides in working with dissociation. Yeah. So which I would say a lot, you know, there's, I've heard you say this before, Craig, but, you know, there's a thousand different roads that will lead to depression. Mm -hmm. And I think one of one of the major pathways to people being depressed is this, you know, being overwhelmed and having an opioid dump, which mm -hmm. leads to, on one option is that it leads to de depression and hopelessness, like we were talking about, where you're still feeling yourself, you're still feeling life, but it's in a very depressed state. The, one step further beyond that is where the threat is so overwhelming that there's no point in feeling anything at all. You know, this is when, you know, uh, a lion is taken down a zebra and the zebra is going to be bitten into and eaten. And at that point, the zebra's nervous system, which is also our nervous system, right? We all have the same basic setup here, um, will move into a much more profound opioid release state where you're not feeling much of anything at all. And the um, interesting thing for, for us is that our cognitive capacity is online and actually more unencumbered when people are in this final state of trauma where they can they can talk fine, they're, they're looking at the world fine, they can do math fine, <laughs> they just can't feel fine, they can't um, relate to anybody. There's, a, there's sort of a... Um, they're kind of a walking dead. Yeah, yeah. One of the big takeaways I had from your training and reading your work is that you know, there are millions and millions of people out there who don't necessarily look traumatized because they're spending so much time in this sort of parasympathetic, dissociative, numbed, empty 
feeling less state yeah and they they sort they look okay but really they're they're like that dying zebra that's just uh living but not feeling much because of so overwhelmed by the opioid response yeah and i think that's what makes it really tricky because you know they look behaviorally speaking they look very calm right and uh, and and just like you know, if you didn't have any threat at all, if you weren't didn't have any trauma in your system, you could be calm and responsive to the world. But if you had sort of the extreme of trauma, you would also be calm in the world. Um, you just not very responsive because you're always in that in that numbed out calm. I, I would call it the eye of the hurricane yeah. kind of state. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the classic thing that a therapist might say in session, "How are you feeling? <laughs> How are you feeling today?" Yeah. For people that are on and off in this dissociative state that it's like kind of a meaningless question completely yeah, yeah it's uh i think any trauma uh any kind of therapy that relies completely on self-report is not effective here because you know the the last person to know that they're deeply traumatized is the traumatized person um you know because the the effects of the opioid is a, is affecting their consciousness and their ability to notice anything mm-hmm. yeah I mean, my sense uh, in psychiatry is that perhaps the two things that are most difficult to treat that we just do not have much to offer are a the negative symptoms of schizophrenia, b complex trauma with the primarily dissociative mm-hmm. uh, presentation. Yeah, and I, that ma- that makes all the sense in the world to me because again, this is an intelligent adaptive response that causes people to go to that state. So their body is doing what it's supposed to be doing under those conditions. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think we, you know, we tend to think that people who have trauma have had to gone through something very big, like a massive car accident, or they have to be in war and, you know, lose a limb or something like that. And we find that's just not the case. You know, I had a private practice for years where, um, I was working with complex PTSD, and none, none, none of my people were veterans, right? So these are people with um, these these uh, really deep trauma states are created when people go through um, experiences, particularly in a, a what I would call a, a developmentally sensitive window of childhood. Um, is that a, is that a time? Is that zero to five, or is that what would you say is developmentally sensitive? Yeah, I would say the earlier. Uh, the more developmentally sensitive it is, the fur, the older you are, the the better. Five is still pretty young for this, but I mean, th- something that we know about you know our human physiology is that we are born incomplete. We are born because uh, uh, and and we are formed by our circumstances, by our environment, by the parenting that we have, by you know the situation we're growing up in. You've talked about in your training and um, in your writings and this idea that that trauma that's manifesting more with sympathetic symptoms, you know, activation and panic and insomnia, that that that, that has a, a lot of potential treatment points, so EMDR and, and even some anti-adrenergic meds or um, possibly even some behavioral therapies, but people who spend a lot of time in dissociative state. There's just not much for them. And I'm wondering, prior to some of the psychedelic therapies that we're going to get into, what what have been the, the effective ways to reach people mm-hmm. when, they're, when their trauma is manifesting mostly as that, the numb dissociation? Yeah, I think this has been a major failing of our field. Um, you know, not only have has the world of psychotherapy not been able to fully acknowledge and recognize dissociation, uh, there was there really weren't any modalities that were geared towards working with it directly. Um, you know, even the trauma modalities that we have had, uh, the most common one, something like EMDR, is designed to work with what I would call stress or high stress states, meaning that sympathetic activation states, where you can see it, you can feel it, you can uh, you know feel the anxiety and the the stress. With dissociation, it's marked by what should be there but isn't there, right? And so uh, I think, like I said, I think there's been very limited things that would address that or even recognizing that we should go for that. I think things, uh, the 
the places that give me hope are sort of uh, Peter Levine's work, the somatic experiencing work, which is, you know, they really did articulate. I think that's one of Peter's great gifts to the world of, of uh, mental health and traumatology is really articulating. There's this entire area here that is really essential for us to focus on if we're going to really resolve these symptoms. Um, and I think what we've been doing uh, at, at an APATH, really focusing on uh, you know, working with what we call cold states, dissociative states, and how to sort of uh, how the autonomic nervous system can pull people out of that. Mm-hmm. So it's been pretty limited, I would say. Mm-hmm. You know, e- even SE is is not, there's not a wide adoption. For mm-hmm. it. So at Innate Path, my understanding is you're using both cannabis and or ketamine to help people to reach people in this numb state and yeah. try to bring them out. Yeah, I think that's one of the glories of psychedelic therapy is that uh, they don't <laughs> they don't work through your conscious rational minds. They go far below that, and they're working with your subconscious and causing all these things that have been hidden from you to really be seen and felt and come to the surface. Uh, you know, we think that. Um, so I, I was one of the clinical researchers in the MDM in the MAPS MDMA trials for treatment resistant PTSD. And what we saw in those trials uh, is very similar to, I think, what we see at, at our clinic on a daily basis with, with uh, these other medicines. I mean, th- there are differences to say, but uh, I think generally once, they, once these psychedelic medicines put people in a non-ordinary state of consciousness, like a, a dream state, if you will, the subconscious tends to, to come to the surface, especially if you have a modality that's looking and inviting the subconscious to come yeah. to the surface. Could you say a little bit about your experience with cannabis versus ketamine versus MDMA, specifically in reaching people who have a primarily dissociative parasympathetic numbing kind of trauma? Great. Well, I'll start with MDMA, right? So... Uh, let me start with regular therapy or the somatic work that we would do without any any medicines on board. Um, you know, people will have some very core thing uh, that they're, they have a dissociative protective mechanism around. Um, so let's say it's sort of a core childhood wound somehow of abandonment or some kind of abuse there. And their system is either split or is, is protecting it in some way. And if you were working in therapy with this person diligently with really like good therapy, I think with that structure, it, it could still take six months to a year to really crack something really core and essential for, for people, which is, I think, still an improvement over what we've had. I, I think talk therapy won't touch uh, dissociative realms. Um, so, you know, but, but still take quite a bit of time to do that. I think with something like MDMA, we see that accelerated greatly, right? We see that... Um, you know, something that would have taken six months to a year can be cracked open in in something like two hours or in a uh, a day long MDMA session can it, the entire focus can be gone towards cracking this one piece. Um, now, the way that it manifests in a, in a psychedelic MDMA session is really interesting, right? Because, you know, um, it will manifest as sobriety. Right. So people at the height of an MDMA session, two hours into it, which should be a very powerful <laughs> uh, <laughs> activating experience, you'll have people that are just flat out uh, sober and not feeling anything. They'll think that they got a, a placebo dose. And they're not, are they dissociated during this? Yeah. They, okay, that, yeah. that's what's going on. That's what's going on. Basically, what's happening is that an opioid response... Uh, that you know their protective endogenous opioid response is meeting a psychedelic response, and the opioid response is crushing the psychedelic response. Um, but you know, it, I guess it's not just that because if you so our trick with that is then to really stay with it, stay with the nothingness, stay with the sobriety. I mean, literally, people will think that they could, you know, nothing's happening, so they'll take off their blindfolds or their their eye shades and feel like okay, I can just walk out of here, right, and live my have my day. And the the suggestion here, the recommendation is that there is gold underneath the boredom. Mm. Right? There is um, <laughs> that's a great statement. There's gold <laughs> underneath the boredom. Yeah. So uh, you know, we as clinicians and the the client's mind will think like, this isn't. I want more than this. I you know, I think this there should be more here, and um, we will be uh, tempted to 
offer something to attempt it to sort of, you know, say like, okay, let's focus on this. And so you can struggle with this. But again, I think, you know, they're, they're switching the session to work with something that the client can actively engage with versus what is naturally coming up, which is the dissociation, the nothingness, the numbing. So what the MDMA therapist should be doing in that case with this person two hours in who seems quote unquote fine or unaffected by the, by the medication is actually encouraging them to go into the nothingness, Yeah, going into the numbness and the, the blackness. Yeah. It will crack. You know, like I said, it'll take 30 minutes or two hours, or maybe it'll take the whole session, but it will crack. And when that, when that dissociation cracks, there's an entire universe uh, inside of it. Mm. Does it sometimes take multiple sessions to crack? It can. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, is still very efficient, but that's not the idea that most clinicians or or uh, participants have of what an MDMA session, what a psychedelic psychotherapy session yeah. should look like. Yeah. Now, the I think the really intriguing thing here, though, is that what we've seen with cannabis is that it's even more effective at cracking dissociation than I think MDMA is. And I'm saying that with, uh, you know, there's a, a fantastic therapeutic opportunity there, but there's also massive pitfalls there to look out for. Yeah, I'm um, so interested yeah. in this topic because two things. Well, one is that it's well seen and documented that uh, the THC can trigger, trigger depersonalization and derealization and sort of these dissociative-like states. And number two, as listeners to this podcast will know, you know, as a psychiatrist here, I see a lot of people with uh, mood and psychotic disorders get triggered into severe decompensation or even new onset psychosis from THC. So Saj, when you first told me that you were using uh, cannabis as a therapeutic tool to sort of break down trauma dissociation, that was completely fascinating to me. But yeah, please yeah. say more about how, how that looks. Yeah. Um, let's say, well, let me, the, the higher level view of it is that, you know, mo t uh, cannabis is the drug that most people know at this point. It's recreationally easily available. People try it in high school. Uh, it's the dopey drug. It's the drug that maybe, in the best case scenario, takes the edge off of anxiety symptoms, right? But we find that more so than any other medicine, when people take that same plant and bring it into a different set and setting, you know, a different uh, context where we're where going for, for um, mental health and, and trauma, uh, it becomes a completely different animal. And even able to, as you say, crack open dissociation. Yeah. Which is, again, yeah. so fascinating to me because I think of THC as, creating as, dissociation. as promoting dissociation. Right. So that that is a question, right? Uh, I, I think it's one of those things that can, ha it can have so many different responses based on the experience, the interaction that it's being used in. I think that's true of all psychedelics, that so much of their outcome really depends on the, the context. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, we know, for example, that MDMA, the street drug ecstasy, which, you know, people can thousands of people take every weekend and go clubbing with it. Uh, very little therapeutic benefit in doing that, although it could be a wonderful experience. I'm not. Um, but take it in a therapy session and it becomes an incredible tool for, you know, complex PTSD. Mm -hmm. um, I think something very similar of cannabis. So is a cannabis session similar to an MDMA-assisted psychotherapy session in that, in that there are eye shades and music and it's, it's an interior ex experience? Yeah, it's an interior experience. And I think one of the things that we find is that, you know, the world of mental health does not like cannabis because it really interrupts people telling their story. You know, it, it interrupts top-down executive functioning. Uh, which in the world of trauma therapy, that may actually be a very useful thing because it's usually that top-down executive functioning that creates the censorship that, that prevents the autonomic processing of trauma. So what we find is... Oh, that's right. So what you're saying, yeah. let me summarize that, is that the, the cannabis can basically can affect talk therapy, can affect your ability to um, listen and reason and work through you know, cognitive stuff, higher level stuff, but... But you're saying that's actually maybe perfect that it's working on lower level, deeper mechanisms. Yeah. And, and by inhibiting the, the more higher level, top level mechanisms, that's actually helpful because those are getting in the way. Exactly. Exactly. I think we're addicted to these higher level <laughs> cognitive 
uh, functions and therapy, talk therapy certainly is focused on that. And I think uh, trauma is so much a bottom up response, a, a more primitive response that if we can get people to sort of get out of their own way, which I think that's the, the beauty of cannabis, it kind of interrupts all habitual functioning. Uh, then I think how it, what's working here is just the the natural uh, response of the autonomic nervous system towards healing. Mm-hmm. And do those sessions are they are the people having THC edibles before they come in? Is it like what what's how does that? They uh, well, the edibles are a little uh, unpredictable because we don't know how long it'll stay in somebody's system and how long it takes for it to turn on. Um, so people will either smoke or vape. And mm-hmm. uh, that way, you know, five minutes later, they're having the the, the drug effects. The pure, and, pure THC. Uh, they, it's really up to them, uh, you know, based on the level of sort of intensity of the work that they want to accomplish. I'd say for sort of somebody not who doesn't normally use cannabis, they probably want uh, a more of a blend of um, CBD and THC. Yeah. yeah. Now, in my work in, in the same PTSD study that you're in, in the, in the MAP study... I have yet to see a session, quote unquote, go badly. I mean, it, they go and they go all sorts of directions, but they never derail. But with with the cannabis, could, have you seen that where you get you know more dissociation or more panic or that yeah that it yeah that it's not therapeutic or yeah. Um, I, I think it really is defined by how. Uh, how you define things going badly. Panic might be what they need. Yeah, Con- exactly. Control, so control panic. We're looking for, we're looking for bad trips. Right? Mm. Um, nobody in, uh, in any MDMA session that I was ever a part of comes out of that saying like, wow, that was easy or mm. <laughs> that was good. It was people always go, go through it. Um, you know, they they go into intense reactivity and uh, feeling states. I think that's the case with uh, with um, cannabis as well. Uh, you know, if if some, I'll put it this way, Craig, that if we're working with somebody and they have a lot of material uh, in these dissociated states, when they're coming out of it, it will look like panic. You know, so mm. they're the dissociation is clearing, and what's under the dissociation is is flat out fear and panic. And so if people are having those responses that in our sort of framing of it, in our model of it, that's actually a positive thing. So breaking open the dissociation could look like bringing on a panic attack in your office. So just a huge sympathetic release, which can be good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because the idea is that before somebody dissociated, it's not like the world was completely okay and then all of a sudden somebody dissociates. Things led up to that dissociation. And typically we will have those high-stress panic responses before we dissociate, if possible. Mm -hmm. And and what about uh, ketamine? Mm. How how might that be used at an eight path with... Specifically with dissociation and the numb states of trauma. Yeah, so th- this is a really interesting question uh, because I think m- many people at this point may be familiar with ketamine, especially with these ketamine treatment centers popping up. And I think there are two clear responses that ketamine has in a person's system. One is the antidepressant, the well-documented antidepressant response, um, and I think that is a almost pure biochemical response that people have to ketamine. And it's always a temporary response, but for people uh, with treatment-resistant depression, that could be extraordinary godsend, right? So yay for that. How we're using it is for the second response that ketamine generates, which is a solid psychedelic response. Um, So during the ketamine session, we will do psychotherapy with a person, and they'll be... The, the what it creates is a dissociative numbing, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but one that allows people to look at things in their life, look at patterns from more of a 50,000 foot level, or, you know, the, you can see the most horrible things that have happened to you in, with, without protecting yourself from them. It's a very matter of fact kind of experience. And, uh, and so some of the things that we find with that is that uh, people's defense mechanisms are very softened. Uh, people's, um, the things that their system would never, let's say somebody who had, um, again, uh, child, childhood neglect. And as an adult, they just cannot 
handle people being close to them or nurturing them or even even touch let's say but with with ketamine they can tolerate that they can sort of relearn that oh this is what nurturing feels like this is what a corrective emotional experience feels like Mm -hmm. and so i think there's an incredible therapeutic opportunity with ketamine to repattern so much so many so many things from childhood and again Uh, is that typically eye shades and music because you said there's you know there's some psychotherapy talk therapy with that too yeah, um, eye shades uh, for both. Yes, mm-hmm. um, probably some music. But the thing to know about the music is that it's it's it sets the tone. It's evocative, but it's not primary for us. We want the primary piece here to be the human interaction, mm. meaning that these are human relational wounds that happened that created these responses and these symptoms in people. We think human relational wounds requires human relational healing. Mm-hmm. you know, human relational contact. Um, so I think that's one way that we might be different from a lot of what's happening in the psychedelic world, which is, you know, taking psychological wounding and and then letting this, you know, transpersonal experience with uh, psychedelic medicines kind of do the heavy lifting. Yeah. How do you how do you decide at your clinic if someone is a better candidate for cannabis assisted work or ketamine assisted work? Ah, uh, yeah, we give them options. We tell them everything that we can about how these medicines look in sessions and what what we see with them. Um, so we don't decide for people; we let them decide on their own. Um, and and the thing is that people can, are certainly welcome to try either one and. and Typically, maybe people will go back and forth between them because a big difference between ca- the cannabis work and the, the ketamine work is that cannabis is, I think, much more activating, right? It, mm-hmm. it really cracks dissociation like we were talking about. I better, think, better than ketamine. Better than ketamine. Yeah. Perhaps better yeah. than anything that I've seen. Yeah, um, and I, 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 yeah and I've heard you say that before. Again, totally fascinating to me yeah. to hear that. What about cannabis compared with MDMA in terms of cracking dissociation? Um, Again, I, the the opportunity and pitfall is that I think cannabis just doesn't abide it at all. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know why it just moves people into that like high activated states, mm-hmm. looking at the same kind of you know um, uh, material. But uh, you know, um, MDMA will take its sweet time. Uh, you know, I think MDMA is a really great therapy drug because. The way that I think about it is that it's a it's an insistent dance partner, but but you can say no to it, right? Mm-hmm. You can say no, I'm not going here, and a lot mm-hmm. of people do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes it nice for people, and that you know they can really sort of choose to go into some of these things. But it's it's also some of the things that you know it can still take some significant time to crack uh, dissociation with with MDMA. Mm-hmm. So in a theoretical world, if if innate path had mdma as an option and hope you know hopefully that will be the case at some point it's sounding like you're still imagining that a significant percentage of people coming in the door with uh dissociative trauma symptoms the the initial go-to would be cannabis i think it would be a a split Mm -hmm. um i think one one of the uh we haven't talked about this but so a, a ketamine or a cannabis session typically is two hours in length Right. So that's two hours of a deep dive into your subconscious mind and processing. Mm-hmm. And a single MDMA session is eight hours mm-hmm. in, in length, you know, probably six of those being very active processing hours. And so the doors that get open over six hours are much more than the doors that get opened over two hours. So I think we can titrate uh, the ketamine cannabis experience much more so than we can titrate an MDMA experience. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we saw in the clinical trials was that you know, people would have these uh, really big MDMA sessions. And then, you know, because of the nature of that medication, you can't take it again for another month, uh, you know, anyway, well, three to five weeks anyway. And during that period of time, they are, they're raw. Um, things are just very open in their system. We had to spend a lot, a lot of therapeutic time holding people together uh, supporting in, people in the MDMA study in the MDMA between, study, between sessions between yeah. sessions yeah a lot of therapeutic contact hours between these sessions and I think what we find with ketamine and cannabis is because you can use them much more frequently you know people will open the door they'll still fall apart but it'll be sort of um, sort of a more gradual movement into being less functional and then sort of coming out of it mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to you know all of a sudden things are open and then 
Yeah, that's really interesting. You've had a long, a lifelong story of, mm. of pain and dissociation and eventual healing, but it's been a long road. Yeah, it's been a long road. And uh, I guess I'll just start out by saying, um, you know, you don't become a trauma therapist. Unless, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you've got some personal mo- stake in the game. Yeah, here. Re- research yeah. is me search. Yeah, research is me search. That's a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, I would say that I am uh, in that category of person that I have almost no physical trauma to my body, um, no like severe beatings or anything like that. Right? Um, mine is just complete, early, early, uh, sort of really profound neglect, um, and this is the type of thing that you know they found in the 1940s when they were doing when they uh, when world war 2 was happening and there was this concern in british hospitals around bacteria and passing on diseases that if uh, that they, they would have infants in orphanages dying and uh, and fail, failing to thrive and what they eventually found out was wow you know like being touched and held and attuned to and responded to is incredibly necessary for a human organism and uh you know so i mean that that's a that's an extreme that that infants will just not thrive and die from it but shorter than that but still pretty profound is you know what happens to somebody's attachment style um when they're when they're not related to what happens to their sense of other human beings and the world when they're not related to uh because you know that ch- that child's mind that child's psyche is still forming just in isolation mm-hmm. right so i would say that that's mostly my structure and it comes from you know having a parent um by the way I, i'll say that you know if it wasn't for dysfunctional maladaptive parenting styles the field of psychotherapy psychology wouldn't exist <laughs> 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 right, if, right. If, if uh, like, what percentage of my patients would disappear if they didn't have a trauma history? A lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- I would still have some, but yeah, yeah. It's such the root of so much. Yeah, there are organic brain diseases mm-hmm. and things like that, but uh, yeah, so much of what causes people to enter into mental health really is sort of childhood trauma, childhood development patterns, mm-hmm. parenting styles. Right? And this neglect for you was happening during a, a key window. Oh, yeah, very key. So my parents, I, I'm, I'm Indian. My parents uh, immigrated from India when I was two years old. And um, my my parents were um, stressed and my mom was depressed about doing it. Um, you know, just a, a, a fact of growing up was like, uh, you know, we had this drawer full of family photos. And my brother, who's older than me, had thousands of photos of him mm-hmm. as an infant being bathed all these things happening and there literally is not a single photo of me as an infant just not not one and i always thought that was strange as a kid and i didn't know what to make of it but do you think you weren't wanted or do you there's the and or mom was just so overwhelmed or shut down or depressed yeah i think uh i think the latter, mm-hmm. you know, um, just overwhelmed, shut down, depressed. Uh, um, I think her own trauma history was catching up to her. I think, uh, you know, she was, she came from a large Indian family and she was the eldest. And so when she was um, eight years old, she was uh, sort of sent off to live with her grandparents who she didn't know. So it was almost like, you know, being abandoned at eight. And uh, and so I think that she had... Um, uh, what what I would call avoidant attachment, you know, sort of avoidant of relationships, avoidant of feeling, avoidant of of really uh, making contact, and uh, so she couldn't give what she didn't have. Could she give your older brother what he needed? I think my older brother got more of what he mm-hmm. needed, but you could still see, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pieces that are are missing in mm-hmm. in his system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I wonder how that manifested. I mean, do you imagine that, like little baby, you, you just weren't being held or loved or talked to or 
Yeah, I think that that was it. I think it's just like, well, here's the here's the crib. Here's you know, you're you're just in this by yourself. You know, so there is a. Um, so I'll I'll I'll, t- I'll say this piece, and you can feel free to edit it. Okay, of course, but uh, so be- and I say that because it's a it's a theory piece, right? Mm-hmm. And then we can move back to personal. But uh, there's a researcher, um, Alan Shore, out of UCLA that is studying. Uh, brain development in infants with secure attachment and infants with uh, un- insecure, unstable attachment, right? And so just to, just f- I'll just say that attachment is a formal psychological term for, for uh, a process that happens between the ages of zero and two years old, mm-hmm. where an infant is sort of bonding with its parent and recognizing whether the world is safe, the world is an okay place, or it's not. Right. So that's the a core thing that's happening there. And we can tell so much about, you know, how this little kid's life is going to be as an adult based on what attachment style they have. And to a large extent, uh, attachment has been seen as, you know, unmute, immutable. Right. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't mm-hmm. change it. Um, so anyway, uh, Alan Shore was is doing this research. And, and what he's finding is that, you know, there's there's baby A right, who is well attuned to and, you know, and baby A has needs and starts crying for food and for touch and movement and being changed and all these types of things. And every time one of those things comes up, baby A starts crying and and a more mature nervous system comes in and soothes the baby by, you know, picking him up, uh, feeding him, doing whatever, responding to the needs, right? And, and so this happens thousands and thousands of times. So in other words, baby gets upset. Uh, there's a response from the outside world. And then baby calms down, right? And eventually what happens there is that when this baby becomes a five-year-old, right, it starts to learn this, it internalizes that self-soothing mechanism. It, it's, it's what's called auto-regulation. And then when that baby's 12 years old or when that baby's 20 years old and things get upsetting in the world, uh, life throws them a curveball, they're able to just take three deep breaths and calm down, right? It's like this, this magic power that mm-hmm. people with secure attachment have, that auto-regulation. And guess what? Um, addicts don't have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Addicts, 100% of addicts do not have auto-regulation on board. They are relying on something external to calm them down mm-hmm. like the substance so let's let's move to baby b right the insecure attached baby where you know this baby has the same needs the same upset that baby a had um but instead of somebody coming because uh in this case the parent is stressed or uh depressed or unavailable for whatever reason and so the baby gets upset gets more upset gets ragingly upset and eventually it does calm down but it's not the relational mm. calming that baby a had it's not the human warm animal Was it the diso- calming dissociative yeah calming. it's a dissociative calming meaning that mm. behaviorally baby a and baby b are both calm but baby b took a very different pathway to that calming and we can see that under these uh, uh brain uh, scans yeah. that alan shore did that there's very there's much more primitive circumstances that's lighting up in baby B's brain to, to calm it down. So, and, that, you, and you were baby B. I was baby B. Yeah. So if we could go back and see you in your crib, eventually you would have been calm. I would have been calm. But it wasn't yeah. a self-soothing calm. It was a dissociative opioid flood numbing yeah. sort of waiting to die, like the zebra waiting to be killed sort of. Yeah, it was, a, it was a non-relational calming. Mm-hmm. And so just imagine sort of this child's, again, their psyche, their mind, their sense of other people in the world forming in that kind of isolation, in that kind of opioid-induced non-existence, right? So it's, it's a pretty profound thing that I think can happen early in, in life. Mm-hmm. So how did that play out for you? Again, your mom's depressed, overwhelmed, yeah. Um, feeding you, mm-hmm. presumably changing your diapers, but you are sobbing, screaming yourself into sympathetic overdrive and then and then dissociative numbing alone. And then now you're starting to walk, you're leaving the crib, you're entering nursery school and elementary school. And yeah. what, what was that like? Well, I mean, the thing is, it's a little hard to say because if it's the water you swim in, 
you don't know anything other than that. You know, it's not like you have a contrast. So I, I can't say, oh, this is what normal life felt like. And this is what my life felt like. I think I was always inside of this space. Um, so, uh, you know, I think I was just like walking around pretty dissociated for many, many years of my life. Not, fe- um, not feeling. Yeah, not feeling. Um, you know, the, an interesting point, though, and I, and I see this with a lot of our patients, is that if there's connection that can be made and so i made a connection to animals and pets Mm -hmm. and found like okay there's something else good in the world Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's not based in this dissociation and this it's this other being and you can sort of find a connection point there it becomes incredibly meaningful and so that that's one of the things that i noticed that was like oh okay there's there's as a a kid you were drawn to animals because there was something just good and warm they were and loving, loving and warm yeah, yeah. they were there mm-hmm. you know and and i mean i see this pattern well into my adult life where i had a very hard time expressing warmth and uh emotion and love towards other human beings and empathy towards other human beings but when it came to animals oh my god <laughs> yeah. it was the red carpet yeah. <laughs> i had a cat that um you know, I had this idea in my head that you know, over this the lifespan of this cat, he's can he's going to jump down from this from the counter that he gets up on a certain amount of times because he only has a certain amount of jumps left in him, right? And so I made sure that after this cat would drink water from the sink, I would pick him up and put him on the ground because I didn't want him to use up his jumps from the <laughs> counter. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was off the hook. It was yeah. just you know that impulse to to uh, connect and love something and ca- take care of something was can o- only be directed towards animals in yeah. my system. Yeah. As a kid, what were your friendships like? Your mm-hmm. um, because I assume there you were probably trying to connect with people in some degree. Yeah, I mean, I could connect on the degree of like, um, like I played a lot of sports and things like that. And actually, that I think that saved me in a lot of ways. Um, so I could do social sports and things like that. But when it came to any kind of intimacy, I don't think that I was capable of it. Um, was but, it scary or was it just alien? Or I'm imagining maybe people being interested in being your friend or wanting to date you and you, again, having this just numbed um broken attachment i mean how how you experienced the the people that would try to reach out and connect with you yeah so i think the only way that i can describe that is uh is talking about some adult life experiences mm-hmm. right and so i guess when as we're talking about it i just want to make an apology to all the, <laughs> the poor women that I've, <laughs> I've dated over the years <laughs> and that uh this has been underneath under the surface all this time but uh initially it would show up as like i just couldn't care more or less, you know, like if this person was there or not, I couldn't care. And in fact, you know, the the closer somebody grew to me, the more that they would become identified as a family member. And for me, that was not a good thing, mm-hmm. right? And for them, that was not a good thing. Because for some people that have really good uh, experiences and patterning with their family, if to have their partner become a family member is a wonderful thing, like all the, the rules and the way of relating that you had in your family turns on with them. That also happened with me, which, again, is not such a good thing. So, you know, I would become uh, critical or disdainful. Um, I would, you know, my system would start to sense this, like, person getting close to this core wound and we'd, would become defensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things like that. <clears throat> Did um, you find yourself being unconsciously drawn or consciously drawn to women who would sort of neglect you or or or, almost had a cold distant attachment because that felt familiar you know um i found both sides of the coin so one side of the coin would be finding women that would are just hell-bent at like like finding me Mm -hmm. right and um and uh like a uh, caretaker women that that kind of thing um the flip side of the coin is looking for women that would i knew would betray me you know, mm-hmm. because this this experience that this core experience that happened in the most, you know, pr- 
primordial formative relationship of my life, this relationship with my mom, was at core a betrayal, right? Like, it, there's no other word for it. And so one of the biggest pieces that I found myself sort of being attracted to was women that were, uh, that either were a solution to this because they were so solidly there, or in which case, you know, then uh, I, I would still have reactions against that, or women that were a complete reenactment of it. Mm -hmm. But there's no way around it. There's no way around, you know, somehow this core relational patterning uh, coming up in in adult relationships. Yeah. And and do you remember, you know, in your teens and 20s and 30s, were you were you unhappy or depressed or were you more just kind of numb and unfeeling or some combination thereof? I think I was a mixture of numb and happy. Hmm. Yeah. Um, there's a, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, just a, a quick story that I, I remember is like, so this strange version of non-attachment, non-contact was like active throughout my entire childhood. Like I remember, like I would watch probably six hours of TV straight every single day, right? And this mm-hmm. was before computers and alone, yeah. Mm-hmm. And my parents were fine with that. Like, you know, I would come home and just lie on the couch, turn on the TV and just be there until dinner and you know, so it was, um, and at the head of our family table was a 25 inch TV. (laughs) So like, so there was just no contact in this family. Right. And, uh, no awareness of, of contact. And again, I think if you have parents that didn't get it themselves, they're not going to notice anything Mm -hmm. weird about it. You know? Um, so I remember being 17 and getting my first girlfriend and, uh, um, you know, it, it, my parents lost their mind, particularly my mom, and because I, I grew up in Islam, and you know they were moderate Muslims, uh, but being moderate in Islam is still pretty hardcore, <laughs> you know, and uh, and so uh, you know just so basically there was all this sense of like what is this new thing that's here? This person actually like cares about me. This person's actually regarding me well. I'm feeling these like emotions and things like that that I'd never felt in, in my entire life. And, uh, and so, and, you know, I think a lot of people might have that with their first relationship, their first love. Um, I had that plus the recognition that other human beings exist, you know? So, uh, so there was a lot going on there and, and it caused a lot of, um, uh, difficulty in my teen years, uh, and a lot of upset, a lot of blow ups. Uh, I was not the the high performing Asian kid. I was just like, you know, there was something in my system saying there, this is there's something deeply wrong here, mm-hmm. and so lots of uh, struggles, lots of fights with parents, and um, and it seemed that it was a bridge that they couldn't cross. I would imagine that you know, as a kid. You could look around and say, okay, we have a TV, we have cars, my parents are working, we have food. Um, there shouldn't be anything, there's nothing wrong. I haven't been beaten or sexually assaulted. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing, but something is actually, in a lot of ways, the most deeply important thing is wrong. Yeah. How did you, how did you start to realize, at what point in your life did you start to put it together? Oh, this is what's wrong. It's it's what was missing, as you said, in those zero to two in the crib, when you weren't, you, you don't have conscious memories of that, but that those, that lack of loving object, yeah. like, that's the core of all the pain. How did you start to come to that realization? Yeah, um, I think we'd have to look much more until I got to graduate school. You know, um, I started. Uh, my psychology training program, not because I wanted to be a therapist, but because I thought human psychology was really interesting. Um, and then probably about a semester into it, I looked at myself and realized that I was insane, that I had so much strange programming. Uh, um, Do you remember what you f- first noticed you know, as you started to look uh, at held up the mirror to yourself when you say you know, I was insane? But what can you remember in graduate school? Like, What did you first start to think? Okay, this is not the way... I should be thinking or feeling or wired. <laughs> you know, okay, so this is a, a good story. Like, uh, I was in this one particular training, and it was um, it was actually a, a, the same modality that we're using at Innate Path now. And uh, it was a group process. And, and so the instructor came by. We were practicing saying um, no 
in in uh, you know the, this idea of uh, you know what is it like to draw a boundary, and do we go into a stress response or is it comfortable for us or you know what happens to us? And I found that I could go, I could say no all day long to any situation and not have any reactivity. And I was like, hey, I'm doing pretty good, right? <laughs> and so the instructor... <laughs> I'm a Vulcan. <laughs> I'm a Vulcan. Uh, the, uh, the instructor looked at me and said, like, hmm, when, when we find people that are that good at drawing boundaries, we usually think that there's some kind of imbalance in the system, right? So they said, like, well, try imagine doing the other side. Try finding somebody, any relationship in your life that you would say yes to. Right? And I looked at this person and I said, why would I ever say yes to anybody? Wow. You know, and I, Craig, I'm mm. telling you, I was in graduate school for psychology at this point, probably, you know, like a year in. And it did not occur to me that that was a strange thing to say. As you said, you were swimming, you were fish swimming in your own water for so long. How could you know that? Yeah. It, Something's yeah. seriously wrong with the water. Yeah. What do other people say? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And so you know, in the so this is you know these types of things operate so below the level of conscious awareness, right? Mm-hmm. Just like I never like bothered to think about you know my re- relationship to boundaries and saying no and yes. Where it was only during this exercise that I started recognizing, like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't have, I don't have, I cannot think of any single situation that I would say yes to. Then, which is, which is, I think, a, a hallmark of trauma, sort of a really broken, mm-hmm. uh, impermeable boundary, mm-hmm. like being overbounded or underbounded, one or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I'm, I'm wondering if you're thinking, okay, I got work to do, <laughs> or if you think, <laughs> oh no, I'm, I'm broke, I'm so fundamentally uh, broken. Yeah. Um, I mean, I could see where it could go either way, that you realize that it's the deepest level, there's mm-hmm. something so well, wrong. I think fortunately for me, I didn't realize it at the depth that it was at that point. <laughs> Otherwise, I might have been more downcast. Uh, no, I thought like, oh, okay, I've got work to do. Oh, and the one other, I'll just mention this. The one other story that really got to me with this is um, of what I recognized that something was really going on. was like, you know, I was, I would consider in, in some ways kind of a high-performing, speedy guy, right? And... I had a girlfriend in Boulder at the time, and one one day she just kind of like slowed me down and was just like, "Stop! Stop doing all this stuff that you're constantly doing. Just like look at me, right?" And so we made eye contact, Craig. It threw me into rage, just pure rage, just making eye contact with this woman without distracting, without moving, without all of these other things going on, and I had no idea. I mean that. My, my conscious mind had no idea what was going on with that, where that reaction was coming from. But clearly, it was a big bottom-up response. You know? And mm-hmm. if you think about sort of one of the ways that infants know of the existence of other, of other people is through eye contact, right? They, they play the peekaboo game. They, you know, they love making eye contact with a parent. Yeah. And I didn't get that. No. And, and, um, and just getting that at this moment, uh, you know, being 30 and getting that all of a sudden, you know, brought up an enormous reaction. Oh. Yeah. And did, how long did it take to know what that was? It took a good long while because the models of psychotherapy that I was studying didn't take account of it, right? You don't, um, you know, transpersonal psychology looks at uh, beyond the, the scope of individual egoic functioning that's one thing but most of psychology is again it's top-down talk therapy based that kind of thing um i don't think there was very many models to explain what was going on here Mm -hmm. right so um but fortunately i was in boulder which boulder along with san francisco and boston is one of this very like innovative hubs for psychotherapy in, in the u.s and so I got exposed to some different modalities that really did focus on this, what I would call more psychobiological response. Yeah. How old were you when you started doing therapy? Uh, 28. 28. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. what, um, so you started with somatic kind of therapies. Um, no, I, I think I initially did start with talk therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, there was a, a, a counselor at the college that I did some graduate work at that I would see. And we were doing a lot of talk therapy. So it was a lot of storytelling, a lot of connecting the dots, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, was that helpful? 
Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it was helpful in terms of um, my for helping my mind orient to certain things. I don't think it fundamentally changed anything in terms of the patterns, in terms of the reactivity. Mm -hmm. It just helped me understand me myself more. Mm -hmm. So, insofar as understanding is helpful, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> how and when did you start to be able to crack through the dissociation and yeah, yeah and. It sounds like like that that moment of the eye to eye contact was the, I picture that like that inner sympathetic rage and but when therapeutically did you start to when and how did that happen? Yeah, I think that was around a similar time frame um, where so I got involved in this uh, work called trauma dynamics, which again is what we were using at an eight path and um, uh, a much more uh, nervous system-based model of, of looking at what's going on here. Um, sort of instead of trying to understand or tell stories, we're looking at just those types of reactions, like I just mentioned there. And so I would say that I did a pretty solid two and a half, three years of some of the most high-end work in Boulder that I could find uh, that was much more of this nervous system-based kind mm -hmm. of thing. Because one of the things that I found with talk therapy was, you know, I would walk out of there and I'd have to take lots of notes and think about things and think about, okay, this is, when this thing comes up, this is how I'm going to manage it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I found with this nervous system response models that there was no notes to take. You didn't have uh, necessarily a deeper understanding of anything. It's just your entire body would go through a, a wave. It would go through a process and come to the other side of it and it felt like ah finally this is getting at what whatever this thing is is inside of me mm -hmm. right um so i would just a, a, the overview of it is that you know i probably did two and a half years of like just that pure nervous system releasing traumatic charge model and so i thought i was like okay this is really great and then and then i realized that well just because i don't have trauma it doesn't mean that i have this new um, I still need to pattern what it's like to, you know, be raised by a competent mm -hmm. parent. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I did a, probably another year and a half to two years of um, really solid attachment work, you know, self-parenting work, uh, mm -hmm. self-soothing work, you know, like, you know. Is that one-on-one -on -one with a therapist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. both of those were. Yeah. They were two different therapists. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one was much more, you know, a trauma dynamic somatic therapist, and the other person was a great gestalt therapist, mm. uh, Don Larson. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out. But neither <laughs> one involved any uh, substance-assisted, no. psychedelic-assisted. No. Yeah, so, and, and I thought, like, okay, by the end of this, I was like, okay, I'm doing, this feels good, I'm, I'm functional, I'm more stable here, and everything like that, right? I don't know if I could still have been successful at doing a relationship, but, like, life felt a lot better at that point, and definitely more stable. And then uh, in 2014, so this is fast forward many years, um, you know, I'd been like teaching this work and having a, a full private practice. So doing a lot. Right. And then in 2014, I got involved in the MDMA trials as one of the clinical researchers. And as part of that, you go through your own MDMA session. And I will tell you, right, even after doing a lot of depth work, uh, my first MDMA session just blew away everything that mm. I, I mean great I, I don't want to say that in in the sense that it, it invalidating what came before but I, because i think that really set a good foundation that was scaffolding for, yeah 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 it was scaffolding but the depth at which the psychedelic work can take yeah, what do you uh, what me, do you remember from that first mdma uh, session okay well um okay so i the very first thing because i didn't know what to expect at all uh you know again I, I grew up muslim and so i didn't even have a drink until i was 24 mm. you know so like no altered states of consciousness nothing like that which is ironic now because i think altered states of consciousness are the way to go for really deep healing you know mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <And> so <laughs> there's some kind of an interesting 360 there um uh Okay, no, but my first experience with that is I went in and I saw this, like, uh, in the darkness, because I'm wearing these eye shades, and I saw this little bit of light in, in my mind's eye, and the light was growing, and it was getting bigger and bigger, and I was sort of making this, making this motion with my hand that it's, it was growing, and then finally it was getting so big that basically my arms stretched out, and my arms couldn't contain how big this was, right? And I was just recognizing, like, oh my God, this is love. This is, 
I am like seeing love for the first time like this. And, and it showed up in this way of like, wow, my God, like nothing can exist outside of this. It's impossible to exist outside of this love that just seems to be here. I mean, even horrible things, even Hitler couldn't. And I actually had that thought during the session. <laughs> even Hitler cannot exist outside of this love. It's the nature of the world. Mm. It's the nature of existence is to love. And it's just like a glimpse into that piece was just extraordinary. I mean, it was just such a new thing to me. In the next episode, part two of this exploration, Saj continues to explore the healing of his MDMA session and then prepares himself for the deepest work of all, using high-dose psilocybin to try to rewire his neglect and attachment trauma. A final ask to you, our listeners, we would love to hear what you like about Back from the Abyss, what you want to hear more of, maybe what you want to hear less of, which episodes have most spoken to you. So please go to our website, bftapodcast.com, and send us a message with your feedback. And please rate us on iTunes right now. This will take less than a minute and help us spread these stories far and wide.